The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We, in this country, we are thankful for veterans and the sacrifice that they have made to create this place in which we live. And I, and I want to say, along with the nation this week, thank you for that. And I also want to say, it is helpful for us as Christians to, to process something when we look at Veterans Day and we think about, we even use some words that should help us. The sacrifice made so that we can be free. What should that make you think of as a Christian? It shouldn't make you diminish what the person on TV or, or the person in the ceremony is talking about and, and, and ignore the United States and the sacrifice made by veterans. But it should also make you think, there is someone else who has made a sacrifice that I may be free. And this morning, as we come to this passage, we look at this, and really we could probably do this in a whole bunch of places in the Bible, but we, we look at this and we say, I say, there is something here that deserves, in a sense, a love song. There is someone who has done something that we may be free. And I don't mean to diminish Veterans Day, but there's more. And so half of this morning is... I feel I'm going to stumble through by, by turning a love song into a sermon. There is something here this morning that I, I beseech you, look at it and see. Someone has done something that you may be free. And it is awesome. And it calls for a response. And I'm going to perhaps get after you a little bit on the response part because we need that but don't miss but don't miss that in the love song it would be tragic to be chastised and miss the forest of the trees so don't 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 let me do that don't receive it like that receive it appropriately there is something marvelous here that calls for a response so with that, let me pray, and then we'll move to the sermon, which I hope you hear is God telling you about something marvelous done for you that you may be free. So let me pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, bless your holy name, the one name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Bless you for your grace poured out on the church, poured out on me, on my life, and on my brothers and sisters seated here. You have done something marvelous. I thank you for that, and I pray would you cause us to marvel at it. It is marvelous. Cause us to marvel. Draw our attention in here and keep it from floating out there. My mind wanders so easily. I know our minds wander. Keep us focused on this marvelous thing that you have done. Stir our hearts. Cause us to see your grace. Cause us to revel in it. 
and draw out naturally, even before I state it, but draw out naturally the appropriate response. Change us. You've told us in your word that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's us. The her is us. Bless your name for that. Cause us to grow this morning in a thankfulness and an appreciation and a wonder at that. And then cause us to respond appropriately to you and to others because of it. Spirit of God, I ask you to move through this room and lift up Christ. You are not about the business of lifting up yourself. You are a spotlight that illumines Jesus and draws his people to him. So do that, I pray. Have your way in us. Be powerfully at work here to lift up the sun in our eyes. Draw us to him and then draw us to walk after him. in a manner that is worthy of this calling. I ask you to do that this morning. Father, Son, and Spirit, be here in our midst and have your way with us, I pray. For Christ's glory and for the good of Christ's church, I ask this. Amen. I once heard a speaker say that if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. Perhaps you've heard that. Making the obvious double point that there aren't any perfect churches and there aren't any perfect people. Not you or me, none of us. Though we often forget that in our moments of complaining. We have a saying in our family that has now become a joke for us. But we found ourselves noticed that we were sitting in traffic backed up behind construction zones, saying to one another, you know, if they were smart, they would do as if we know anything about road construction. But if they were smart, they would do because I'm omniscient. I know. No, I don't. But I forget that in my moment of complaining. And we forget that often in our moments of complaining about the imperfect church or maybe the imperfect school or the imperfect job or the imperfect marriage that you're saddled with and forced to endure. If they were smart and they would only get their act together and do this and that and the other as I know it, then things would work out perfectly. But when it doesn't happen, like we think it should, or as fast as we think it should, in the manner that we think it should, then what, then what comes? Complaining. Criticism. Judgmentalism. You look at the church, and you see its sin and its shortcomings, maybe as a whole institution, or the individual people who are within the church, and you look at people and you see their sin and you see their shortcomings, and judgmentalism and negative complaining starts to grow in our hearts and eventually comes out. Maybe you look at your spouse and you see his sin or you see her weakness. And you begin to process it, 
Maybe what begins to rise is a judgmentalism, a negativity, a complaining, a nagging, an anger about how his sin has messed up your life. Or, or turn it just a little bit. Maybe in uh, one of those quiet moments at night when you're getting in touch with who you really are, and you're looking at yourself, and you see your own sin, and your own shortcomings, and you begin to think, there is, there's no way that I can overcome this, and that I would ever conceive of being different. This, how am I ever going to defeat this sin and grow in this and become the kind of person that God wants me to be that would be a blessing to others like I want to be? That would be pleasing to Him. It just can't happen. And so maybe what rises is, as you critique yourself is a despair or a hopelessness. And joy evaporates. You're not perfect. Frankly, you're not anywhere near what you should be. And neither is your spouse, your kids, your parents, your classmates, your sister, your brother, your church. No one of us in particular, and no group of us as a whole. There aren't any perfect people. There aren't any perfect institutions. We are called to be saints. Set aside to be holy ones. We saw this last week in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. He's called us out to make us holy, but we, the bride of Christ, are far from pure and spotless like we're supposed to be. And nobody knew that better than the Apostle Paul. About the church in general, or in particular about the church in Corinth, to which he wrote this letter that is our focus. We began looking at the book of 1 Corinthians last week. This week we're in verses 4 to 9. We saw there that Paul has written a letter that is just chock full of evidence of, of division and discord within the church, groups and factions forming, and then sometimes the church as a whole divided from Him, which is to say divided from God. All of which flows from a, a common problem, a lack of applying the gospel to the heart, to the human heart. This is a book about the gospel applied to the human heart, and it will affect all kinds of different stuff. It's about the gospel applied to the human heart. Christians failing to do that, and Paul is well aware of it. And yet, he does not descend into complaining and negativity and judgmentalism or despair or hopelessness that it will ever be different. There's rebuke in this letter for sure. But it comes from a totally different attitude. An attitude that we're going to see to this morning in verses 4 to 9. He's well aware of problems. But his appropriate response is thankfulness to God. And a graciousness towards the people of God. That's his response that we're going to look at this morning. This passage is about looking to God even while you're seeing all kinds of trouble right here in front of you. It's about looking to God and how that, getting God right in the heart, 
changes how you see all of this stuff and all these people with whom you interact. Any good that there is comes from Him, and any good that there will be is also going to come from Him. So we look to Him, we see good, we are kept from criticism and despair. That's where we're going this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 to 9. And this section is still part of the introduction of the letter. We, we talked about this a little bit last week. A, a letter of that day would have begun with a standards sort of structure from so-and-so to so-and-so greetings. That was last week. And then there would have been a, a section of kind of compliment, niceties, if you will. That's this week's section. Just like we saw last week, he takes the usual format and turns it just a little bit to make some points. And he's going to turn it a little bit this morning. This, this is the nicety section, but it is not primarily directed to the Corinthians. It's not Paul to the Corinthians, greetings, you guys are wonderful, I love you. It's Paul to the Corinthians, grace, I'm so thankful to God for what he has done in you and how He has poured out His grace on you, and how He has delivered you, and how He is keeping you, and how He is faithful to you. Who's that about? That's about Him. A little twist turns our attention to God. If you were to walk through verses 1-9 to and count up the number of times God, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Lord Christ Jesus is referenced, it's all over the place. I didn't actually bother to count. I didn't have that many fingers. It's everywhere. And the only reason that we miss it is because we're used to it and we think it should be there. This is the introduction to a letter to somebody that's really about somebody else. How odd is that? It's because he wants to point their attention somewhere. Our attention somewhere. Which brings me to the main point. It's about God. Surprise. Here's the point I'm working on this morning. Because God is full of grace towards His called ones, we then, response, we then are to be thankful, gracious people in dealing with His called ones. Because God is full of grace towards His called ones, we then are to be a thankful, gracious people when we deal with this called ones. That's my main point for this morning. I'm going to work on unpacking that with three different steps. First, I'm going to look at the, the two layers of grace that are, are revealed in this passage and then what our response to that should be. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage and then I'll move right to it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4-9. to I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. 
by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9. So begin with the first layer of grace that's here in the passage. It's something that God has already done to His people. Here it is. God in grace has called and enriched the saints. He has called and enriched His saints. This comes from verses 4-7 to in the beginning of 9. Well, it's in 9. And as we unpack these verses, what we'll notice is that there's a, a pretty strong connection back to the previous section. All of these verses, it's part of a, of a general greeting. And you'll notice in verse 9 we have the bookend where 1 through 3 began, particularly with this word called. It comes back to the word called in verse 9, which we looked at last week. You recall that when we were discussing that, to call someone, different than to call upon someone, to call is to summon. To look at a group and to summon someone to something. You, come here. I call you. And so in verse 1, it was Paul called to be an apostle. You pulled out from the rest. I want you to this apostleship. In verse 2 then, the church called or sanctified. It says the same thing twice in verse 2. You recall from last week. Sanctified, that is set aside from the whole. Called to be saints. Taken out from. Verse 9, same thing. To whom, or by whom, it's God who does the calling. By whom, you Christians, you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus. God's saying, you, come out from them and come over here. You particular ones. This is a work of God by His initiative. They don't, we don't call ourselves. They didn't call themselves. God summons. God calls people out. It is a sovereign work of God. It is a gracious work of God. Notice how it is. this passage is laced with grace to you in peace from verse 3. Verse 4, I give thanks to God for the grace of God. This is a grace work of God that calls us out from and to. To what? The fellowship of His Son. Not just His service, which is true also. There's a different flavor there, isn't there? It would be slightly different if I said, I called you to service. That's more like a, a, a draft in the army. You, come here, to my service. But there's a little bit of a different flavor. It's a call to fellowship. You, come here and be my friend. You, come here and draw near to me into communion. Union. Oneness. Think about that. This is, this is one of those points where the sermon might get in the way of the love song. We are way too familiar with this. God Himself called you to be Jesus' friend. That's stunning. 
come on. I know, I know, I know. I mean, Jesus is all over the place here. It's a Bible. I expect that. No, come on. He called you into the fellowship of His Son. Do you know who you are? At least who you were. You're His sworn enemy. This is stunning. What king would ever send out a decree into his realm to find the murderous assassin who seeks his life and say, you, come into my study. Sit down with me. That's crazy. But that's what he's done. We each are from birth born enemies of his. And as we grow up and begin to think and act for ourselves, that is exactly what we do. Think and act for ourselves against Him. We are growing moment by moment by moment against Him. And He says to you, Christian, you come here into My fellowship. My beloved Son and you together. Come on. That is amazing grace that would save a wretch like you who once was lost but has been found by Him. You didn't find yourself. He found you. You didn't call yourself. He called you. As Romans makes clear again and again and again, there is no one who seeks God. No, not one. There is no one who is able, who even wants to submit to God. And therefore, it does not depend upon the desire or the will of man, but on God who has mercy. Romans 3, 8 and 9. And yet it has happened by the call of God. Come on. Christian, what He has done in calling you is... Stunning. This is the Gospel. (laughs) Christ crucified for you. Raised for you. You brought into communion with Him. Amazing. Can that actually be? Yes. And it has been confirmed by the fact that He has opened the door. And here's the image I used last week. You open a door and the door was holding back a mountain of grace that now is layered on top of you and covering you. Which confirms that was the key that opened the door. Christ crucified, Christ raised, you trusting Him alone is the key that opens the door and unleashes upon you Grace of God. That's what verse 4 says. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. In grace He has called and enriched His saints. Calling is focused on, but there's more. The grace that you were enriched in every way in Him. Paul continues. Specifically, enriched in all speech and all knowledge, 
skip the parenthetical comment in verse 6 for just a moment. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. He opens the door and what floods out on you is grace that enriches you in every conceivable way so that you don't lack anything. Which does not mean, actually, that you individual Christian have every conceivable spiritual gift. You don't have, if you run through the list in the New Testament, you don't have every single spiritual gift. We, we as, as a unit have all the gifts. But it's speaking of abundance, is it not? You have abundance. Nobody gets the shaft. We have different gifts, but abundance. He enriches you. Specifically in all speech and in all knowledge, he says. So you don't lack anything. Now, obviously this this comes right up to and and even says spiritual gift. It's touching on spiritual gifts which is a prelude to a lot of stuff that's going to be talked about in the rest of the book. So I'm not going to go into all the details now. But the point is, He called you to Himself into fellowship. Really? Really? Yes, and it has been confirmed, as verse 6 says. Confirmed by the fact that He has done more than that. He's actually enriched you, blessed you with all kinds of spiritual goodness. Our speech and knowledge in particular are grace-altered. We are a people filled with, indwelt by God Himself, the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of details, a lot of details to follow on that. In chapters that are yet coming. But do you understand this first layer of grace, what He has done to call you to Himself, not just into His army or His service, but into His friendship. To call you to Himself and to bestow on you gift and blessing layered on top of gift and blessing, which is on top of gift and blessing. You are enriched in every way. That's you. But it is also... Every Christian you've ever met. So take a second and fix in your mind some Christian in particular. Maybe it's your spouse if you're married to a Christian. Maybe it's your parent. Maybe it's the person, probably not the person you're sitting next to because you, when I go on you wouldn't want to be sitting next to this person. But the person who's across the, across the room. Fix in your mind some Christian in particular with whom you are currently at odds. Which is why you're not sitting next to them. Unless you have to because you're married to them. <laughs> fix, fix that person in your mind. And then replay the last five or eight minutes. Because that person right there has been called by God into fellowship with His Son and is deeply, dearly loved by Jesus. That person in your mind right there with whom you're kind of... That person has covering him, covering her, grace upon grace, gift upon gift, blessing upon blessing, enriched in every conceivable way. 
That person. The one you're not speaking to right now. You ever had this experience? Where you walk up to somebody and you begin, man, you know, Billy Bob. And what you want to say is such a loser. If he was smart, he would do, but he's not, so he's doing an uh. That's what you're going to say. Man, Billy Bob. And the person says, oh, you know Billy Bob? Man, I love that guy. We went fishing last week. We had a ball. Oh, I never had so much fun. And in fact, I found out that he's been out of work for a little while, so I just gave him a job. And until the first paycheck comes in, I'd let him borrow my car. I just love that guy. What were you saying? (laughs) Nothing. Ever had that experience? Why does nothing come to your mind? Because you realize either this is not going to be favorable gossip opportunity, or maybe if, if, if God was at work, maybe you realize, maybe I don't know everything there is to know about Billy Bob. Maybe I'm not looking at Billy Bob through the right set of lenses. Maybe there's a little bit of me in my evaluation of Billy Bob because this guy who I respect and like thinks Billy Bob is awesome. Maybe the person that you're at odds with, maybe there's just a little bit of you in evaluating that because this other person, Jesus, that you think is awesome, dearly loves Billy Bob. Has called him or her into fellowship with himself and is spending his moments layering him in grace. The one that you were about to criticize and judge. Maybe there's a little bit of you in that. Maybe. You and every Christian that you know and every group of Christians that you know and every church of Christians that you know has been called by God's grace into fellowship with His Son and is layered in blessing upon blessing upon blessing and dwelt by God the Holy Spirit Himself. That's the first layer. And the second layer of grace shows up in this passage. It's about God's gracious work in us now and into the future. Grace, God in grace, preserves His saints all the way to the end. God in grace preserves His saints all the way to the end. This comes out of 7 and 8 and the beginning of 9. Start in 7. We are blessed by God so we don't like any spiritual gifts. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second coming of Christ he's talking about. I know a number of us know this. Some perhaps don't. Jesus came once. He is coming again. We don't know when, but we know that He will. He will come come and every eye will see Him. Some in joy and some in anguish. But He is coming. 
And from our perspective, we here in His church, called into fellowship with Him, our dear friend has been gone in some way. Yes, present with us, living in us, but gone in some way. And oh, glorious day, as we sang, oh, glorious day, He is coming. And we look forward to that and we rejoice in the fact of His coming, even while we mourn the fact that He hasn't come yet. But He's coming. And until then, while we wait, Jesus, that's the who in verse 8, Jesus will sustain us to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord. We've been sanctified in Him. That's what uh, we saw up in verse 2. We have grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let me talk about this in Christ idea for a moment. Because we're talking about Christ sustaining us and the two ideas are, are connected. Think of, think of Jesus, if, if you can, as a balloon. And to be in Christ is to be inside the balloon. And why that's important is that all of the atmosphere out here is filled with pick your dangerous gas, carbon monoxide, whatever. And inside the balloon is fresh air. Grace. So to be in Christ Jesus is where we are recipients of grace. Verse 4, grace of God given you in Christ Jesus. That's the only place. There aren't multiple balloons. One balloon. You have to be in Christ. If you're in Christ, you receive grace from God. And also you receive sustaining. He will sustain you to the end. Verse 8. So what that means is think of the balloon as being bulletproof. It's a balloon that's not just passively existing in this atmosphere. It is being attacked. You are inside of it being kept, preserved, protected, sustained. Think about that word sustained for just a second because it is the same word and perhaps if you have the NAS you might have picked up on this. It's the same word that's in verse 6. The ESV and the NIV translate the two words differently because they have slightly different meanings in the two contexts but it's sort of like opposite sides and there's a common center. The center of this word, what this word is, is at its core about is strengthening, establishing, supporting, rooting firmly. And so you can see in verse 6, what's being established, strengthened, firmly rooted? It's carefully, the testimony about Christ was confirmed. It's, it's the gospel message and its reality, its effectiveness in your life. It's as if the question being asked in verse 6 is, is that true, really? I mean, Paul's walking around saying that if you trust Christ on His cross, that He will actually remove sin from you and bring you into communion with His Son. Really? Is that true? Yes, confirmed by the fact that you are a recipient of all this grace. So that statement that the gospel is rooted and established and, and verified. 
move down to verse 8, who will sustain you. You personally. So not just is the gospel true, but you. Are you true, you might ask? Will you be kept or will you wander away? Will you be destroyed? No, you won't. Because Jesus will sustain you. Not you. Not you yourself. No, I will not be crushed because I will keep strong. No, you will not be crushed because He will strengthen. I will not be crushed because I will hold the balloon walls out and never let them be punctured. No, because they are impenetrable. He will strengthen you, as the NIV says. Make you to be strong, I think. He sustains. He protects. The grace of God. You are a Christian because He called you and you remain a Christian because He sustains you. He preserves you. Bless God for His grace. Preserves you from what exactly? Well, I've already hinted at there are attacks coming against you. Keep reading in the verse. He'll sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. These attacks that are coming at you, the threat from which he that, that he holds back and from which he protects you, is is not circumstantial trouble in life. He does not keep us from pain and loss. This is a spiritual sustaining. So that you at the end would be guiltless before Him. The day of the Lord, to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's alluding to something. And you might, you might hear it when I say the day of the Lord. What's he talking about? He's alluding to the Old Testament where the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. When Jesus comes back, He comes to deliver His people, but He also comes to judge the quick and the dead, as the old creed says. To judge the living and the dead. And the only people who will stand at that judgment are those... you thinking about this? Who stands at the judgment... Those who are holding firm in faith to the only way they can be rendered guiltless. Not nice people. Not good people. Not people who have claimed to know Christ. People who are actually holding to Him. Christ crucified. Careful here. This, this is, there is some potential deep water here which I have to not jump into too deeply. I'll be willing to later if you want. I'll, I'll say it like this. There are no unbelievers in heaven. Which means the people who go to heaven are those who believe. Not who said they believed somewhere in the past, but who believe in an ongoing, continual sense. How Jesus preserves you is He keeps you believing. 
He keeps you holding to Christ as your only hope. And when Jesus was delivering the parable of the persistent widow, remember how he ended that in a very puzzling way? But I wonder, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Or will he find that, unlike persistent widows, they knocked once or twice and gave up and went somewhere else? Will he find faith on the earth? That's what he needs to find. And what this verse says is, yes, he will. He will find it in you, those whom he preserves. What this says is that he's doing a heart work in you as a Christian. He has committed himself to work constantly in your heart to keep you hoping in Christ. He preserves you by preserving your faith. It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. So you stand before Him now at this moment, and because He preserves you, you will stand before Him tomorrow and the day after, and at the end of that day, guiltless. Because you believe constantly in Christ's cross. We don't produce that in ourselves. He does it. And He does that for all of those whom He has called. He sustains them and holds them all the way to the end. Or as Romans 8 puts it, 29 and following. Those whom He foreknew. Listen to the whole work of God here. It is a unit. From God's perspective, it's a done deal. It's all You hear the English past tense in this. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified, that is, declared not guilty. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That doesn't happen until after we're dead, but it's already happened in Paul's eyes in Romans because Jesus confirms you all the way to the end. As I said, there's a whole pool of deep water there that I try to just put my toe into a little bit to make the point. He has saved you. He is saving you. And He will save you. All of it by grace. Not by works that none of us can boast. None of us can boast as we look at Billy Bob, who currently isn't towing his own weight. None of us can boast. He sustains, that is Christ, sustains me and him. Both. Just the same. Are we in different places? Sure. Yes, absolutely. But, we need to be really clear. If God has said, I look at this one, and because I am sustaining Him, I am upholding Him, I am keeping in Him saving faith. So I look at Him as guiltless, and I look at Him as guiltless, and I look at Him as guiltless, and all the way to the end, He is guiltless. I need to be very careful in assigning guilt. You follow that? You need to be very careful in assigning blame where God has said blameless. He's a Christian. He's called by the grace of God and enriched by the grace of God and sustained blameless by the grace of God. He preserves His saints all the way to the end. 
The grace of God layered, layered. So how should we respond to that? Takes us to the third point. Having seen the grace that God has layered upon His people and upon the the church as a whole, individuals in it too, of course, because these are true, here's our response. Thankfulness to God for and gracious approach to God's people is our appropriate response. I'll say it again. Thankfulness to God for and a gracious approach to God's people is our appropriate response. And I think that, at least for me, as I deal with this passage and think through what I've prepared here for this morning, this is perhaps the most important part. Because it gets down to what, how it shapes our community. Now, I don't want to, I say perhaps because I don't want to in any way denigrate the theology that we've just been talking about, but here's kind of what we do with it. The first half of the sentence, thankfulness to God is obvious. Verse 4, I give thanks to God always for you when I contemplate the abundant grace layered on you. Poured on top of you. Slathered all over you. Give thanks to God for that because where did it come from? God. Give thanks to God always for you. We didn't do it. We didn't earn it. We didn't partially merit it. So I give thanks to God for you. Now, I do want to say as an aside, there is, there is certainly warrant here to give thanks to God for me, myself, because that's what he's done for me. And, and if you remember the beginning of the sermon, there are, there are times when we get in touch with ourselves and see our own fallenness and our own wretchedness. And it's appropriate at those times to say, thank you, God, for the fact that all of this is true of me by your grace. You have called me. You have saved me. You are delivering me. So, yes, I am a sinner, but bless you for your grace. That's appropriate to give thanks to God for me. But the point here in the text is I give thanks to God always for you. He's modeling for us something remarkable here. He gives thankfulness to God for others. And what kind of others are these for whom He is giving thanks? Have you read the rest of 1 Corinthians? Ever? Look down at the very next verses, 10 and 11. I appeal to you, brothers, so right after this, I appeal to you, brothers, that you agree and that there be no divisions among you. For it has been reported to me that there is quarreling among you. Or, you can jot this down if you need to, but it's not necessary. 3 verse 1. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not acting like human fleshly people? Or chapter 4, picking up where we, where we touched on last week, where Paul calls them to die to themselves like him. The very next verse, I stopped right before verse 18. But some are arrogant, he says, of the church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. 
Separation, division, little fiefdoms, quarreling, arrogance in the church. I thank God always for you. Which isn't to mention chapters 5 and 6. The church wrestling with and locked in sexual immorality. Christians suing other Christians in the church. Or 8 through 10, flaunting their autonomous independence even at the cost of hurting other brothers, arguing about spiritual gifts, unloving, proud, even highly confused about the resurrection, about what will happen in that day when he comes. Paul's going to address all of this stuff. And he begins with, I am so constantly thankful to God for you. Because of the abundant grace poured out on you. You are enriched in all speech and knowledge. Bless God for His grace. Though I know I'm going to have to deal with some of the sin that's related to your speech and your knowledge. You did not lack any spiritual gift. Thank God for His grace to you. Although the spiritual gifts have provided much opportunity for pride and division and arguing. I have to deal with that. Christ is coming for you and will keep you to the day, though you are completely confused about it and spreading false teaching, and I'm going to have to deal with that. Thank God for His grace that has done these things and created these problems. There wouldn't be any problems with spiritual gifts if God hadn't given them. There wouldn't be any problems with this church if God hadn't created it. This is remarkable. Or maybe Paul has a brain lapse here. Maybe maybe that's what happened. These aren't the kind of people that you're thankful for. They're the kind you're afflicted by or burdened with. No, they aren't. They're people just like us. They're just like us. Paul looks at them. And he, he is completely aware of what his next verse is going to be. He writes the next sentence. And he also wrote this. Because he sees something about people. What does he see? He sees something that keeps him from falling into a critical judgmental, depressed state. He sees something. What is it? Well, I'm going to express it by modifying a little bit what I once heard C.J. Mahaney say when he was preaching on this passage. These are my own words because I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like this. He said, Paul is thankful to God for His grace because if ever Paul sees a person running hard after Christ filled with, that is, controlled by the Holy Spirit. He knows that God has done that and is to be thanked and praised for it. In fact, if Paul ever sees a person not running hard after, but just kind of running at all after Christ, God in grace has done that and is to be thanked and praised for it. Or if there's a person jogging after Christ, 
or fast walking or just plain walking or walking and intermittently stopping and then walking on a little more after Christ. That only happens by the grace of God and He is to be thanked and praised for it. Or if there's a person who's actually standing up and looking in Christ's direction or standing at all or lying down awake looking That is by the grace of God, because apart from the grace of God at work in us, we are dead in sin, dead to Christ, face down, completely unresponsive to Him. Any sign of life at all is by the marvelous grace of God, and He is to be thanked and praised for that. And we should look at such ones and say, you are an object of God's mercy and His grace and His love. Thank God for doing that. Not criticizing them and punishing them and judging them. Paul looks at the church in all of its problems. And as an aside, let me be clear. There are problems that need to be addressed. There are chapters coming up about them. But you can address problems in different ways. And he addresses them as the Bible consistently addresses them through a mechanism of grace and promise. God has acted to make you His own and is at work in your life constantly making you His own. Keeping you near to Him. And in that position, brother, sister, there's some stuff that we have to deal with. Some stuff, as he would say, I can't commend you on this. I, I, I need to point this out to you and say, problem right there. First and foremost, he sees a people who amazingly are objects of God's grace and he exclaims thanks to God for them. So should we as He models that for us. So do you? When you look at the church, that person in the church, or maybe your spouse, or your own self, or your parent, you first and foremost, not denying the problems and saying everything is great and wonderful here, not denying them, but do you first and foremost... Look at the people of God as they are the people of God by His grace. Whom He has called out, enriched, and is carrying home and looks upon as pure and spotless. Even though we are not pure and spotless, we are pure and spotless. In his eyes. What about in your eyes? There's a tough tension here, is there not? Because I'm not only speaking about the theoretical snub in the hallway. Christians sin against us. I imagine that Uriah the Hittite would have had a difficulty with this. If you know the story. 
when King David, an Old Testament Christian, took Uriah's wife and murdered Uriah. That, that puts some teeth in this, I think. So I think Uriah would be justified in saying, problem, huge problem, right here. But he, and that's about the hardest situation I could think of, but he and we in, if we're honest, far less difficult circumstances, we have to wrestle with this reality. God is not pleased with sin in people. But God is pleased with His people. There's a tension there. We need to keep both of those things in mind. Not, not to forgive and overlook sin and ignore sin, but one large reason we have to deal with this. There's, I think there's an obvious reason we need, to, we need to wrestle with this because of what the atmosphere in our church would be if we could grow in this. But there's another significant reason that we have to wrestle with this. Because ultimately this becomes an issue between me, the judge, and God, the judge. When I say to the road crew, or about the road crew, if they were smart, they would do, I'm setting myself up in some place which is ridiculous because if I thought about it for a second, I have no idea what they're even doing. They're cutting another strip down the pavement. I don't know why. That's ridiculous, but that's what I'm doing. I'm setting myself up and saying, you know, whoever ordered that, I got a better idea. I'm contesting with him about his wisdom. Behind all criticism, all judging, stands a human heart contesting with God over His wisdom. When you criticize the weather, pick something common, simple. Man, it's raining today. What you're saying is, God, you screwed up the weather. That's what you're saying. If you were smart, you would have had it be sunny today because I had a golf tee time at four and it's pouring. What are you doing? I'm being a little harsh there, I know. But that's true. That's what you're doing in your heart when you criticize the weather. And when you sit in judgment over one that God says, I look at him and he will be blameless, guiltless before me on that day. Well, he's not in my eyes right now. Hold on. Yes, God has an attitude that He will—he has to deal with sin. He does not overlook sin, sweep it under the rug and say, I don't care, no problem. But He deals with sin from a stance different very often than our stance of judgmentalism and criticism. Watch presumptive pride that stands behind complaining and criticism. Thankfulness to God is our appropriate response. And I've already been leaking over into and so I just have a couple of comments about graciousness towards God's people. You deal with God in thankfulness and other people in graciousness, not in judgmentalism and criticism and all that yuck. 
primarily that comes from the fact that you see that God loves this person. God loves these people. God loves the church in all of her imperfections. He's dealing with them. He's going to deal with this sin, but He's going to deal with it from a position of grace. We can still say hard things in grace. We say hard things in love, in grace. We likewise must be gracious towards God's people and thankful to God for them as we look at them through God's eyes. So I'm going to end here and ask you to take a minute or two and think about this. And that person that you fixed your mind on a minute, a few minutes ago, is there something that you need to repent in relation to with that person? Do so. And then I would encourage you, pray for that person. Something happens when we pray for people. Pray for God's grace to, to grow on them and to be manifest in them, for them to, to walk with Him. And, and then, thirdly, is there some tangible step of reconciliation that you need to initiate with your spouse, with some other person? You, you just think about those things, and I'll close it as we move to communion. If, if, there, if there's an usher who can tell the nursery where we are, and apologize for me to them. <laughs> that would be helpful. So take a few minutes and then I'll move us into communion here. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.